May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Amen. Well, what a week. What a week. On Monday, the traffic light system was announced and we came in at Orange, which uh, I've got to say I was very surprised about. I thought we would be red like just about everyone else around us. Uh, so that's a map of New Zealand and you can see that geographically most of the diocese is in fact in red. And Tauranga is a little bastion of orange at one end and Hawke's Bay orange down the other end. And everywhere in between is red. And I thought that's where we would be. And then the bishops at the end of last week sent out their pastoral letter detailing where their conversation had led them to, which was not an easy place. I know that from Twitter because one of the bishops, the bishop who was actually uh, responsible for chairing the group uh, that made that recommendation, was very reluctant to make that call. Vaccine passes have become the norm for most of our services. And once we have that set up, that will make life much easier and much safer. So. Uh, we will be able to put the seats, um, so we left them like this for this week because I wasn't sure that everyone had their vaccine passes or would remember their vaccine passes. So, uh, and if we were to adhere to the rules strictly, we would have had to say to them, I'm sorry, you can't be here. So this is a vaccine pass service run under the old rules. So we were just going to leave it as it was for this week. But next week you will need your vaccine pass. Uh, but I think all of you showed it this week, so you don't need it because we've ticked you off on the list anyway. Uh, but all the seats will go back as they were, and you will be able to sit next to whoever you like. Um, so that'll be nice. We'll still sit for hymns. Um, we will, uh, hopefully, if we can get people on the roster, offer prayers for healing. And uh, we will have morning tea, again, if we can get people on the roster. Um, we're a little bit smaller than we were four months ago, so... Getting people to do some of those jobs is not as easy as it was. But not everyone who is part of our parish will be able to come. Some will no longer be able to attend services. Some who have been involved in our mission and ministry will no longer be able to be involved. And that is hard. It's hard for them. It's hard for us. It will be kind of like it was four months ago, but it will also be different because those people largely will not be able to be present. And all of that, while we have been leaving behind an old church year and embracing a new one. I've raised eyebrows and register, so you can move to the next one, please. So we have our new gospel, last year we had Mark, this year we've got well, a whole lot of John, and this year we've got Luke, uh, and Christmas is kind of just on the horizon, and we're trying to make sense of all of our new environment as we enter into Advent, this time of expectantly preparing for, well for what? For Christmas? Hmm. Despite the carols in the shopping malls and the supermarkets, which have been playing for far too long, mm -hmm. and at least America has Thanksgiving Day, which is the kind of, you've got to get past Thanksgiving Day before, and Black Friday before you can have the Christmas carols. Ours seem to start every, earlier every year. 
Soon we'll be starting to have them at Easter. Uh, despite all of that, and despite the urgent need to organise gatherings or getting to gatherings and presents, I was told off last week because I hadn't uh, sent off my list of uh, hoped-for presents to Secret Centre, and uh, trees, there were lots of people out yesterday buying trees. Uh, despite all of that, Advent is so much more, despite even having the Christmas thing uh, all out. And thank you to those who put that up yesterday or the day before. Pretty sure it wasn't here on Friday, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't swear to that. Um, despite all of that, Advent is about so much more. Advent is a time of expectant preparation for the Christ of history, Jesus, born, you can see it, born uh, on Christmas Day, traditionally, and who lived the presence of God among us, so that we might more fully experience the Christ of mystery, the ongoing work of the crucified and risen Christ in our midst, in order that we might prepare for the coming of Christ in majesty, when all God hopes for comes to be. So, raised eyebrows, Christmas is important, but it's not the point. If we stop there, we miss the point. It is about all the rest of what Advent is about. So during these Sundays, uh, of expectant preparation, we are invited to reflect on some themes. And so last week on the short candle we had hope, and this week on the slightly bigger candle we have peace, and then the pink candle will be uh, joy and then love on the Sunday before Christmas with the Christ candle in the middle. So last week, I assume, that uh, Debbie talked about hope. So I'll raise my eyebrows again. I, I don't know what Debbie said, I didn't record it. Um, I really like Jim Wallace's description of hope as believing in spite of the evidence and watching the evidence change. And I like it because it's grounded. It's grounded and it involves us. So too often we hope for pie in the sky stuff like, I really hope that one day I will win lotto and then I will be able to help my children buy a house. So that would be great. Um, but there's little chance of that happening, partly because I don't buy tickets very often, and apparently have to buy tickets to win, which I think is a bit rude. And secondly, because even if I do have a ticket, the odds of winning are terrible. So I've won $20 a few times, but that's not going to help anyone buy a house. There's little chance of it happening. I also hope the virus goes away next year. That, that's a great hope. But, well, hope is too often about things I can dream about, but actually not do much about myself. Jim Wallace's definition of hope uh, involve, invites me to work for what I hope for, so uh, to live what God hopes for. So, for example, I hope that uh, everyone in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has a house and enough to flourish. So, under that definition of hope, this Advent, how, what do I need to do to live that out, to help make that reality? That's what Jim Wallace's 
definition of hope invites us into. So this week is about peace. So here's another picture. Another tricky one. Sometimes we reduce peace down to an absence of conflict. Sometimes we're willing to enforce our peace with threats of violence. Rome enforced its peace during Jesus' time with crucifixions, lots of crucifixions, and brutal violence. During the Jewish uprising, peace was restored with the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Jews and the enslavement of many more and the destruction of Jerusalem. Peace was restored, but would we really call that peace? Today we even talk about war being justified as a means to peace, and so the Vietnam War, Iraq, Afghanistan were all talked about in terms of establishing peace. And as the other end of all three of those military campaigns and others, we would have to ask, What kind of peace was achieved at the end of that? Throughout history, empires have used violence to enforce their version of peace. America does it today. Britain did it during their time, enforced its peace with a military presence across its empire while it gathered the wealth of those bits of its empire and took it all back to the UK. And if you go to places like India and Countries around Africa, they do not look back at those times as a time of peace. The Mongol Empire, which is the largest single continuous land empire ever, it occupied over a fifth of the land area on earth, had a slightly different use of violence. Uh, So Genghis Khan, who didn't quite achieve all of that, He didn't quite achieve the destruction of the Song Empire and the unification of China. And uh, they hadn't finished moving through the Middle East when he died. He only ever had an army of a thousand, of a hundred thousand, which meant he couldn't leave garrisons everywhere. If you have an empire that stretches from, uh, well, they got as far as the Danube, they withdrew from that because honestly they thought Europe wasn't worth it worth the while. We keep thinking of Europe being a wonderful place, but the Mongols were like, eh, nah, nothing here for us. We'll withdraw back to Russia where it's nice and cold. Uh, They like the cold. Uh, All the way through Russia, China, Central Asia, and into the Middle East. That's a vast empire. So um, they established trade routes. They established the first foreign exchange uh, system, so people could trade in one place and then move to another place and they knew exactly how all the currencies related to each other. They set up a trade route with uh, way stations, a day's journey, all the way around where horses were looked after, animals were looked after, uh, the wares of the traders were looked after, and and traders could have accommodation and food and everything else that they needed. Uh, It was an amazing system, and it it meant that trade flourished. They got rid of the bandits. Bandits was a no-bandit zone. And unlike many other people who tried to get rid of bandits, they were very efficient at getting rid of bandits um, because they moved fast and lethally. Uh, And as long as you played by the rules and paid the tax, everything worked really well. But at any point you thought, hmm, do you know what? I haven't seen a Mongol army for a year or two. I don't think I'll pay that tax anymore. 
A Mongol army would appear on the horizon very quickly and your city would be erased from history and no more to exist. And they would leave enough people alive to go out and tell all the other cities what had happened so that they never thought, do you know what? I don't think I'll pay those taxes anymore. So everyone played by the rules, but the threat of violence was always there. Always there. Play by the rules, benefit. If you don't play by the rules, you will cease to exist. Ruthless. But it does give us an, an inkling of what peace might be. Because in their system, at least the entities, if not the poorest people, all could flourish. All could do actually much better than they had done up to any time up to that point. Because trade flourished. It was the only time in history where the Silk Road was controlled by one entity which meant trade flowed up and down that road easily. And Europe flourished at the end of that road. Christopher Columbus, when he bumped into America, was trying to find a route back round to China to re-establish that trade route. That trade route was so efficient that when the Black Death appeared in China, that's where they think it originated from, it moved swiftly and effortlessly through the trade routes, collapsing the trade routes as it went, all the way into Europe. With the collapse of the trade routes, the Mongol Empire collapsed as well. It was built on trade. People were willing to put up with it as long as they profited. So peace, in part, was about everyone flourishing. So, what is peace then from God's point of view? Well, God's peace is about wholeness, completeness, when all is as it was created to be. Shalom. We use shalom for peace, but it actually means when all is as it should be. All is complete and whole. Peace comes when all benefit, and it happens when the common good is held as supreme. Surely that's what the Beatitudes are about in both Matthew and Luke. Surely that's what Luke 4 is about, which is many people talk about being Luke's mission statement. In this week's of Luke's Gospel, he begins with a litany of the powerful, starting with Caesar, because everyone's power came from him, Tiberius. And he was the one who would decide who would have power and who would not. And so we went down to Herod, who lost his position because at some point Tiberius went, you know what, you're pretty inefficient, and sent him off into exile. Uh, we have Pilate in Galilee. Herod's brother had been Tetrarch in Galilee, but he'd been fired because he was just horrible, and too horrible even for a Roman emperor. So he'd been fired. Uh, and Pilate, Roman governors were put in place and so forth. Even the high priest's power came from Caesar. Caesar said, you can be high priest. When Caesar said, you can't be high priest anymore, they couldn't be high priest anymore. All power came from Caesar. And Caesar maintained his version of peace through the legions. So Luke starts with a litany of who is in power. And then he says, well not in that reading, but his whole gospel says, 
Actually, that's not where peace is found. Peace is not found in all those powerful people, some of whom are based in Jerusalem, some in Rome and other powerful cities. Peace is found in a baby born to peasants among the animals. There's another picture at this point. In a stable, in a small, small village outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. That's where peace is found. And peace is found in the preaching of John the Baptizer, who was born into more privilege, not ultimate privilege, but more privilege than most people. But he chose to live on the edge in the wilderness. The wilderness is a dangerous place, and it's a rough place, and it's a liminal place. That means the barrier between heaven and earth is thin, thin in the wilderness, and God seems more accessible somehow in the wilderness. But the wilderness also echoes the place where the exodus happened, when the people of God were brought out of Egypt. And they were stripped of all they knew of the ways of Egypt, the ways of the powerful, because those were not the ways of peace. And they were offered a different way of life, a way of peace. And in the wilderness, John quotes from the scroll of Isaiah, the part of the scroll which was addressed to exiles. So later on, when their lives had been shredded and they lived far from home in a foreign land, serving a foreign empire and their gods. And they are promised that God would be with them on that journey home. And like the wilderness in the Exodus, this time of return would also be a time of letting go of old ways, the old ways they had learned in Babylon, the old ways that had led to this calamity in the first place. Like the Exodus, this was a time of formation and refining because, because peace is not found in the ways of the powerful. So John offers a baptism of repentance, which, as I've said a lot last year, is about having our minds blown and about having our hearts and lives changed. That's what repentance is. And forgiveness. Forgiveness for the ways that we have sought peace through the ways of the powerful. A baptism of letting go and of having our minds blown and seeing life in new ways. So normally, you could say that Advent is a time of letting go, but this Advent feels, well, a little bit different, doesn't it? After the nearly last two years, you could say that we have lived in exile. Our lives have been markedly changed over the last two years. And too often we long to go back home, to go back to how things were before. But maybe this time, like those on the Exodus and those in the exile, maybe this is a time for us of formation and letting go. Maybe it's a time where we need to think about how we need, what we need to let go of during this time. So I wonder what we need to let go of and 
so that we might experience glimpses of hope. And as we hear Zechariah's prophetic words, which some people say every morning during morning prayer, and as we listen to his son quote Isaiah, where do we see signs of God's ongoing presence among us that point us to new ways of being in God with each other? And where do we see signs of God's ongoing presence among us that offer peace and invite us to live compassion, God's compassion for all? So how do we experience and how do we live God's peace this Advent? So I invite us to just spend a moment in quiet reflecting on that.